0: This is the final session and message of our time together. It's important. It's significant. And I I pray that you will truly be ministered through it. And I recognize that you are all very tired. So here's my challenge for you. Try to listen for one more thing. One more important spiritual truth that you must have to go home. And to serve your God. Listen for one thing. Write down at least one more thing. Let's open our Bibles together to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You can see our passage is 1 Corinthians 4. But we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 18. And take a running, a running start. At our message, I'll read our passage and then I'll pray for us this morning. 1 Corinthians three eighteen, Paul continues to say this, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise In their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise. That they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present... For things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. Let a man consider us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of a steward that one be found faithful. But to me... It is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of the hearts and then each one's praise will come to him from God now these things brothers I have applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes so that in us you may learn not to go beyond what is written so that No one of you will become puffed up on behalf of one against another. Verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, one last time we come to you in this chapel for this camp and we we pray that you would help us to see powerful, wonderful things in your word about you. Not about us, but about you. That we, that we may serve you better going home and going from this place. Amen. My simple goal this morning is to charge you that humility is essential to you. Humility is essential to you if you want to be of faithful service to Jesus Christ. Humility opens you up to faithful service to Christ. Without humility, you can do nothing. That's what our Lord says, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. What does that mean? You, you have to be dependent on Christ to do everything. All things are from and through and to him. But to come to him like that, you must be humble. And that's what we want to see. How, how does humility open you up for faithful service? Let's look at three points this morning about how humility provides, opens an opportunity for Christian work, for service. Not just for the church, but throughout your entire life. How humility opens you up to be a living worship service to Christ every single day. How does humility do this? Number one, it frees you. It frees you for growth. It frees you for spiritual growth. You can 't grow spiritually and be filled with pride at the same time. Growth only comes after you humble yourself before God and man. It always only comes after humility and, and we know this in our world too in, in sports or or in school, if you do those kinds of things. When do you grow? When do you grow when you finally stop saying, "I know better than my coaches, I know better than my teachers." And you start saying, I am going to listen to them. That is when you start growing. But first, you must get off the platform and say, I need to be a learner. I need to be humble. And I need to just do what they're telling me to do. That's when you start growing. We've... we've, continue to read that book by Stuart Scott reminding you again of this quote pride comes between you and all that Christ wants you to be and become pride is the evidence of foolishness and childishness that's what pride is it's childishness it is it is staying an infant that is what pride is 20 proverbs 26:12 says do you see a man wise in his own eyes there is more hope for a fool than for him What's the difference between a great summer camp and a lame summer camp? Humility. I hope you've experienced a great summer camp because you have humbled yourself under the word of God. That is my prayer for you. But I also want you to see powerful truths about humility. And I want us to learn from the church in Corinth. Now, the, the Corinthians, the Corinthians have a lot to teach us have a lot to teach us. Paul's letter here is a letter of correction to the church that he has just received questions from, and also at the same time reports concerning. Paul has heard things that are concerning about this church, and at the same time, he's also hearing questions from this church. This is, of course, during his three-year ministry in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. You can see that in Acts 19. But it's interesting to me, and a professor in seminary pointed this out, when you when you examine the New Testament, when you do a word count in the New Testament, what church did the Spirit of God inspire to have the most words written to it? It was an immature church. It was a it was a, a a church that was stagnant spiritually. That is what the Spirit of God wants us to look at. It was it was a church that was filled with problems. That is who the Spirit of God wants you to see the most. This is the structure of First Corinthians, if you would care to know it. First, the first half of the letter, Paul spends correcting the reports that he's heard. That's one through six. And then the second half of the letter, Paul corrects the questions he's received. That's seven through fifteen. Paul confronts all their spiritual pride first, though, and their arrogance. They've been elevating and, and bragging about themselves and, and following this leader over that leader and, and clumping into spiritual groups of, of hierarchy. They, they are not humbled by the gospel. They are using the gospel for their own personal achievements and pride. You know how that is, right? When you use Christianity to just impress other people or make people like you. We live in a day and age where we possibly could be in a church culture very easily in our church when we come to church. And you you know the game. You know how to do it. Just say the right things, and people will be pleased with you and like you. But maybe maybe if I do this or do that. The Corinthians were not humbled by the gospel. They were using the gospel for their own selfish ambition. What was their problem? They were proud. They, They said to themselves, God must sure be thrilled to have me on his team. That was essentially the heart in Corinth. And what resulted? What resulted from this heart of pride? Well, they were limited. They were stunted. They were immature. They were babies. They were limited in their growth. And and notice their their true condition. Uh, Paul recognizes their true condition and insults their spiritual pride and and tries to pull back the curtain on what they're really like. And he says, instead of being spiritual, in chapter 3, verse 1, instead of thinking you're all that, you guys call yourselves spiritual men, but really you are fleshly men. You are infants, chapter 3, verse 1. You are mere men, chapter 3, verse 3. You're the farthest thing away from spiritual strength. You are not growing at all. You are still a a spiritual baby. They could have, should have had so much more going for them right now. They should have been advancing far beyond where they were. They could have been of, of great service to other people around them, but instead they were squabbling about personal disputes, personal problems. They were infantile. They were acting like children. They were kept from growth by their pride. Matter of fact, the, the language there in chapter three, chapter three, verse one. And I, brothers, was not able to speak to you as spiritual men, but as fleshly men, as infants in Christ. The language there is embarrassing. It's shocking. Fleshly infants. They are. This is, there's, there's an insult here. An insult here. This is a term that usually refers to the unregenerate, the people who have no love for God. A matter of fact, they have. Enmity towards God. They are enemies of God, Ephesians 4 tells us. And, And Paul says, you are acting like unbelievers. That's what you're acting like. You are fleshly in that way. Now, I don't think he's saying that they weren't Christians, but he's trying to shock them. He's trying to say, you look more like the unregenerate Corinth around you than the Christ who is named among you. How dare you? We should learn many lessons from Corinth. We should learn from them and, and how they were hindered from growth. What should we learn? We should, we should learn that, that pride keeps you in the nursery of spiritual things. We should learn that. It, it keeps you dependent on other people and not in a good way. You, 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 only, you only know things because other people say things to you. you. You are only encouraged spiritually because other people are talking to you. You cannot dig for the gold, the gold and the truth of Scripture for yourself. You are dependent on others. You cannot grow. You are in the nursery spiritually. You're never able to serve either. You're constantly needing to be served. But we should also learn from Corinth that pride puts you in God's trap as well. Did you see that in chapter 3, verse 19? Pride puts you in God's trap. 3, 19, right? He, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. God's spiritual trap for humanity is pride. It keeps you under judgment. It's actually a, a biting reference there, if you think about it, because Paul is quoting from Job 5.13. He's quoting a man from the Old Testament um, called Eliphaz, who actually is a spiritual, proud man who is rebuking Job, saying, God catches the wise in their craftiness, and he's going to catch you. But by the end of the book of Job, Eliphaz is the one that is caught. You, you may think you've got a lot of things going for you spiritually, but your pride is putting you in God's Trap. Pride is the very judgment of God. It keeps wicked unbelievers under judgment, and it puts Christians into discipline. Why? To call them to repentance. If you have pride in your life, you have discipline coming. But another thing we could learn from Corinth in terms of, of lacking growth, notice this as well, pride also blinds you from your true spiritual condition. Think think about the way the letter to the Corinthians works. Uh, They come to Paul with all of these questions and all of these problems. And how does Paul respond to them? He doesn't even acknowledge their questions until the seventh chapter of the letter. He's telling them, you've got so many problems that are underneath the surface of these problems that we can't even deal with these problems until we go to the heart problem in you, which is your spiritual pride and immaturity. You you can't even see. Do you see that? You can't even see where you're at spiritually. You're immature and you think you're great. You're immature and you think you're growing. You're immature and you think God is doing all these great things in your life, but really you are blinded to your own true spiritual problem. This is the corrupting power of pride. And this is what we see in Corinth. You are spiritually blind. But notice also what we should learn from Corinth. Pride cuts you off from leadership, from shepherding, from discipleship as well. You know, your your small group leader can either be the aroma of life to you, or they are the aroma of death to you. Everything they say to you can either be uh, filling your heart with joy and encouragement, even in correction. You have joy and encouragement because you're hearing the word of God and understanding it. Or all it is is white noise to you coming between you and what you really love. That is who your small group leader could be to you. And and this is ultimately, in your heart, pride manifesting itself. I've got nothing to learn here. I don't want to hear from you. I've already heard this message. I know the gospel message. I know what you're going to say. I don't want to talk about this anymore. That is pride. And this is what was going on in Corinth too. They considered themselves better than their leaders. They considered themselves better than Paul. They had found bigger and better leaders to follow. They didn't need Paul anymore, and they were cut off from the very apostle of jesus christ the sent one of christ i know what you'd say if paul was my small group leader i'd listen to him but you wouldn't you would treat paul the same way you treat your pastor because of pride in your heart. Pride keeps you. Once again, it keeps you from all that Christ wants you to be and become. Can you see it there? Can you see it in Corinth? But humility frees you for growth. This leads to the second opportunity. So the first opportunity, what? It was that that humility frees you for growth, but the, the second opportunity I want you to to see In humility, is that humility also frees you to receive? Humility, secondly, frees you to receive. Receive what? Pride puffs you up above all other people, above your leadership, above your shepherds. Pride places you above any need to change or grow. Pride isolates you, but humility does what? Humility lowers you to receive. Humility frees you, in other words, to receive spiritual help from the instruments of grace that God has given you in your life. Humility frees you to do that. Your pride chains you up, keeps you down, hinders your growth, but humility frees you gloriously to grow and to change. Once again, God doesn't place the great graces of life on the top shelf. He places them on the bottom shelves for those who are willing to get on their face before Christ. But, but notice this, uh, 4, verse 7, right? Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Pride says, I have received nothing. I am a self-made man or woman. Humility says, I have received Everything. I have received everything. These are are great questions to ask yourself. What do I have that I have not received? And am I boasting as though I haven't received it? How do I view myself? Notice this too. Pride limits you in receiving things. Pride limits you. You're, You're cut off from so many benefits by pride, as we've already seen in the Corinthians. This short statement here in chapter 321 through 23 is extraordinary to me, but think about this. Pride limits you from all that belongs to the believer. It keeps you. It cuts you off from receiving all of these benefits. Once again, let me read it to you again. Notice this astounding section that maybe you've never seen before. It's so new and so sharp, right? So then, then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. What? What? Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. What is he talking about? Notice the, the, the logic, right? If, if you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God... All things belong to you because you are with Christ, and Christ is with God. All things belong to you in the sense that all things are governed for a purpose that is for the good of the people that belong to the sovereign who controls everything. All things belong to the believer in the sense that all things work for your ultimate good. And you can say, I belong to this. This belongs to me, rather. This belongs to me. You can even say, a believer can even say, trials, troubles, difficulties, discouragements, humbling times belong to me. As a sweet gift from a gracious and all-powerful and sovereign God who is seeking my good and his glory, all things belong to me. The world and things to come. Learned about this last night. Kingdom glory with Christ belong to you. Future rule. Even though it means suffering with Christ now, according to Romans 8.17, future ruling with Christ, reigning with Christ, belongs to you. Notice also, teachers, gifts of Christ to the church, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, which is another way of saying Peter, all of these gifts are from Christ, according to Ephesians 4.11-13, and all of these people, these teachers, these gifts, belong to you you don't just say I I just only read Paul you don't say I only read Moses you don't say I only read Peter you don't say I only read John you say I get all of them I get all of them because they all belong to me if I belong to Christ, but but notice also what belongs to you. It's it's staggering, it's it's surprising, it's astounding. The world, life, even death, things present and things to come also belong to you. Providence is working for your ultimate good. God's control of everything works for your good. What a blessing to the believer. All things belong to me, even the worst days. Because I belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God, and nothing can separate me from the hand of God. And humility frees you to go to Christ, rejoice in Christ, and embrace powerful peace in the midst of painful circumstances. But only humility will do that. Only humility will free you to receive all of God's good and gracious gifts. But let's look at a a final opportunity. And this is what I really, really want you to see. Yes, humility frees you to grow. Humility frees you to receive grace as well. But this is astounding to me. Humility frees you to serve. Humility frees you to serve. Paul, of course, needs to expose the folly of their pride, the folly of the Corinthians' pride. But he also needs to insist on his own position, on his own authority. He is, after all, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You don't treat an apostle this way for your own spiritual benefit, Paul's saying. I must insist on who I am. You, you, You must not ignore me. For your own spiritual good, he he is a gift, but he is also a servant not to be trifled with. And and I would say his his description of himself in in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians is really just ingenious. Because you know what he does? He he both can insist on his authority and, and also use himself as an example of humility all at the same time. Because that's the way a Christian can speak. They can, they can speak as someone who, who bears the authority of Christ, or as he says, the, the, the mysteries of God, while also saying, I am nothing but a servant. He gives three metaphors of a minister. It's, it's almost as if he's trying to say, let me try to spell for you, let me try to spell for you what servant, how, how servant is spelled. How do, how do you spell servant? I spell it like this, a servant is a field worker, a servant is a a construction worker, a servant is a household manager, but how do you spell servant? How do you spell minister of Christ? Is it someone great, exalted, doing all the speaking all the time, or is it a field worker, a construction worker, and a household worker? What what burns into your mind when you think about a spiritual minister, someone who has spiritual greatness and strength? Is it someone high and exalted, or is it a low servant? To use an illustration, back in, back in 2001, which was when all of you were born, there was this fantastic event that reshaped America for a while. And it was when two planes ran into two towers in New York City. And there have been so many fantastic pictures that have come from that moment. But the pictures that have always stood out to me are the pictures of the people going down the stairs of the Twin Towers trying to escape. This line of people going down the stairs, down the stairs trying to escape. Well, the smoke is beginning to fill the buildings. And what do you see also in the picture? You see a picture of a firefighter running up the stairs. I ask you, how do you spell hero? Because if you ask people from New York, they say firefighter is how we spell hero. Isn't that what Paul's saying as well? How do you say, how do you spell Minister. I spell it servant. That's what I do. I spell it construction worker, field worker, household manager. Just real quick, these metaphors are striking. First off, in chapter 3, verse 6, he talks about himself like a field worker. Of course, Corinth was a, a place of rich agriculture, so they would have totally recognized this. But notice he gets to say two things at the same time. First off, he gets to say he is nothing. He also gets to say he's significant. First off, he's, he, he says, I am nothing. I am just a field worker. I'm someone that plants the seed. Somebody else even waters it for me. I'm nothing, though, because nobody ever asks, who planted this seed? Ooh, this fruit is so good. Who planted this seed? Nobody cares. Nobody cares about who waters. Nobody cares about who picks it, even. They just care about enjoying the fruit. Paul is saying, I am just a field worker. I am nothing. I am to be forgotten. But at the same time, he also can say, but I am very significant because this is nobody's field. This is Christ's field. Therefore, I have significance and power attached to my person. I am like a field worker, but also I am like a construction worker. Chapter 3, 9 through 10. Corinth also was filled with important buildings. They would have understood this, that a building first has a cornerstone. And if you get the cornerstone wrong, the whole building is wonky. So cornerstones was really important, but the whole building was the thing that people would see and rejoice in. Paul can say with this illustration, I am a a layer of the cornerstone, and at the same time, I am nothing. Because his aim isn't to build up his own fame or his own name, but it's Christ's. He is building the foundation that is Christ's. He's not attaching his own name to this foundation, like some builders would do in those days. But he is saying, this is Christ's foundation. And anything that you add to it must be built on this foundation properly. But at the same time, he can say, I am nothing. But at the same time, he can also say, I am significant. Because I am a builder in God's building and therefore significance is attached to me but here in chapter 4 notice notice the third metaphor he uses the third picture of how he wants to describe a servant for us a servant is a steward verse 1 a household manager now back in the day An estate manager was entrusted with a massive, at times, a massive amount of wealth. He had huge influence, in fact. And near Corinth, there was a whole peninsula that was at a time ruled by a steward who was ruling in the place of someone down in Egypt. So they understood that a a steward was kind of like a a stand-in kind of owner of the property, but they did not own the property. We even see examples of this all throughout scripture. For example, in Luke 16, we see this story of a wicked steward. And you know what he has? He has the ability to change bills for his own advantage and for his own favor. And we see in Romans 16, 23 that a steward could also be a city treasure. He manages the books for a city. But who was, who was a, who was a steward? They were someone significant, of course. He had massive authority, power, responsibility, because he was given the title of steward. But they were also nothing, because his whole significance was attached to the master that he belonged to. That is where the steward's significance comes from. And this is what Paul leans into. What's most important about being a steward? What is the, the only opinion that matters to a steward? It's not what everybody thinks. It's not what the world thinks. It's not what this house even thinks. It's only what my Lord thinks. He says in verse 2, In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be simply found faithful. Now notice, notice, Paul isn't motivated by the following factors. He isn't motivated by what others think of him. Now, it does matter what others think of you if you want to be a minister of Christ. But that's not what motivates him. That's not what ultimately motivates him in faithfulness. It's tempting to think in our lives. I'm sure it's tempting to think in your lives because I know you a little bit. If if other people would just like me, if other people would just accept me the way I am, then I'd be happy. Then my life would be well. It's tempting to think that, right? If, if people around me would just have a high opinion of me and think of me well, I would be free. I would be happy. But happiness, popularity is not what Christ calls you to. It's not what Christ called Paul to, and it's not what Christ calls you to either. What does Christ call you to? The same thing Christ calls Paul to, faithfulness, to live a life that's pleasing to him. Paul also isn't ultimately motivated by how he feels about himself as well. And you see that there, right? I do not even examine myself, he says in verse 3. No, right? He is not motivated by what other people think, but he's also, notice how extraordinary, refreshing this is, he is not even motivated by what he thinks of himself. Now, it's remarkable. It's remarkable that somebody like Paul, with the Bible knowledge that Paul has, is not even critiqued by himself. He says, I I, I do not examine myself. I I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But it is the Lord that examines me. Paul has a clean conscience before God, and that is a remarkable thing, but even that, Paul says, is not valuable to me. That does not motivate me. It's tempting to think, I'm sure for you, that Maybe you don't struggle with the, man, if other people just liked me, I'd be happy. I'd be content. I'd be at peace. But, but, but maybe you struggle with this thought. If I just liked me, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be sufficient. Then I'd be content. Then I would be diligent. If, if I was just satisfied with me, if I just had this thing called high self-esteem, everything in my life would go well. And I could serve with freedom. And I'd finally not be chained up anymore to other people's opinions of me. If, if I could just like me, I would be motivated. But, but notice, Paul says, this counts for nothing. I do not examine even myself. I don't care about what I even think. Who does he care about? He cares about the Lord's opinion and the Lord's opinion alone. Why is this? Because when Jesus comes, he is the only opinion that will matter to me in that day. And and notice verse 5. When Jesus comes, I am going to have so much trouble before him that... Anyone's opinions of me will be quickly forgotten. My opinions of me will not matter when Christ comes, regardless of how good I think I am or how bad I think I am. That won't matter, and I won't be thinking about any of that. I'm not going to be parading all of this praise from others. I'm not going to be parading all of this praise from myself before Jesus. That's all going to evaporate. Because when he comes, he's going to do something. He's going to get this and shudder. He's going to bring to light the things that are hidden in the darkness. And he's, notice this, going to make manifest the motives of the heart. I've got more to deal with here than from any other court. And that is God's court. Now, when you don't think this way, when you don't think this way about the only opinion that matters to me is God's opinion, you will become puffed up. Because as we've talked about again and again, it is so easy to deceive yourself in spiritual pride. And it is so easy to, to, to go with the highs of people's subjective opinions of you and think well of yourself. It's really easy to do that and to think well of yourself. When you don't intentionally examine yourself as a servant of Christ, you will examine yourself poorly. And I would even say, you can never serve Christ with proud motives. All of that service will be worthless to him. Because all of that service is saying, this ministry that I'm doing is from me and for me and Christ will have no other glories in his presence. Pride hinders service, but humility, notice this, frees you for service. It frees you to serve and to love other people. What are the fruits of humility? This is the final part of my message. Please, young people, listen, listen. What are the fruits of humility in your life? You will see increased thankfulness in your life. Because you will read verse 7 and you will say, what, have I, what do I have that I have not received? How dare I boast as if anything good spiritually in my life has come from me. By the gospel, there is no situation where you cannot be overflowing with thankfulness because of the grace of Christ given to you. But I also want this theme to thunder home, this second fruit of humility. Notice also the freedom that comes from humility. The freedom that comes from humility. This is what we've been talking about. Humble people are not bound up by themselves. Humble people aren't hindered by their opinions of themselves or other people's opinions of themselves. They are free to serve Christ and to love Christ and to love others regardless of what other people think. They are freed from jealousy. Do you ever struggle with that? They are freed from fearfulness of an outcome. What if this goes wrong? I don't know if I can do it. I don't want to do it if it goes wrong. No, they're freed from that. This is in the Lord's hands. I will serve faithfully. They are freed from slavery or the trap of human wisdom, that this is all about you. You are freed from that, but only through humility. There's freedom in humility. There's thankfulness in humility. But notice another fruit of humility. There is complete sufficiency for those who possess humility. Complete sufficiency. You can say with Paul in chapter 3, verse 21, all things belong to me. I have all that I need to handle this situation. This situation even belongs to Christ because Christ belongs to God and I have nothing to fear from this situation. Even though it may hurt, even though it may sting, even though it may humble me, it belongs to me and because I belong to Christ, I have complete sufficiency as far as I am pursuing His honor and His glory. But the final fruit that I see here And this is the fruit that I want you to take away. If you're still looking for that one thing to write it down, just write this. Fruit of humility, not just freedom, not just thankfulness, not just sufficiency, but see this, also endurance. You know humility is in your life when you have endurance for hard people. Isn't Paul's enduring love? for this immature church, so staggering to you? I don't know if I could have endured with them this long. But Paul endured their rejection of him, their belittling of him, their ridicule of him, their distance from him, their immaturity towards him. He endured all of that, and he served them Because he was filled with love. Even after they, they blacklisted him, even after they were too good for him, he endured them, and he even entreated them, and he continued to do these things to them. He was never done with them. You need humility if you're going to do anything of spiritual good for others, because other people are difficult. Difficult. And you cannot endure without humility. But but why did he have humility, and how did this produce endurance in him? It was because he kept saying to himself, I am just a servant. And I have been called to this moment. And I believe I have sufficiency for this time. But all that matters to me is Christ's opinion of me in that day when the darkness is removed, and the motives are known. All that matters to me is that I have run a good race, that I have finished well. Humility makes true Christian service possible. Humility floods your life from the gates of grace to produce a flood and a torrent of love for others why because you have been loved and you have been endured with and you have been served far beyond anything you could ever repay the humble service is exactly what we were singing about in that song you must say every day Jesus keep me near near The cross. Keep me in the cross. Be my glory ever till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. You must keep saying, Lord, keep me in the cross. Never let me evaluate myself according to me, but according to the cross. Only when I am in the cross will I be spiritually freed from self and others and sin to serve you and to seek your glory. Keep me in the cross, Lord Jesus, I pray. Spread its scenes before me every day. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this word and we pray as we go from here, we would be motivated by all the calls of humility to sweet, thankful, free, sufficient, enduring service to you in wherever you have called us to serve you. Amen.